Well, there's, I think we all know there's kind of like um, certain topics that are a bit frowned upon uh, to talk about. It'd probably be, you know, usually it's like religion and money and politics. And it's like, just don't bring up those topics and this family gathering will be fine. Or, you know, if people brought it up, like, how much money do you make? You'd be kind of like, oh, it's not, it's, um, not really any of your business to be asking me that. And, you know, if you bring up politics, then people might start fighting. Um, but we might feel like this, there's certain things that if somebody brought them up with us, it would be like disrespectful or nosy, kind of prying into our lives where they shouldn't uh, pry in. Or it feels like, well, this is none of your business. It's a private matter. And it could even be if I, you know, if a married couple was at our house uh, and I asked, like, well, tell me how your marriage is. Uh, it might feel a little bit like, well, it's kind of like really private, right? You know, how, you know, what do you guys do at night? Like, what's, how is your relationship? Do you, are you treating your spouse, you know, kindly? It might be kind of like, you know, it's kind of like getting really personal. It's like, just stick to talking about the Bible stuff. Don't start talking about uh, what's going on in my relationship. And I think maybe something for us to ask ourselves is, are there topics that the gospel does not touch? Are there topics that um, are kind of off limits for Jesus or God or the, the message of the good news about what Jesus has done for us that it's just like the gospel has nothing to say to that that they're, uh, it just Jesus has no business kind of meddling in that part of our lives and as we look at this next this passage we read and maybe even as you read it you're kind of like oh uh, some of that might have even been offensive or just kind of like I don't get what that means or maybe that doesn't apply today um, but Peter let's remember that he's writing to a group of Christians that are struggling in the city that they live in, the region they live in, because they're different from the people around them. Uh, Christianity was brand new. Um, he's writing about uh, 30-ish years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And he's writing to them saying, look, I know you're experiencing some difficulty because of your relationship with Jesus. You've given yourself to him. You've given yourself to this good news that came and was preached to you, that Jesus died for your sins. He was raised again. Now he's the king of the world. And you surrendered your life to him. You surrendered and said... Yes, I want him to be my king, and I'm going to follow him. Uh, and now you're struggling with that. People, there's rejection, there's ridicule, there's pressure to fit in. And so Peter writes this letter. This is, what a, this is why you're different. Remember that. Remember what happened, that God came into your life and changed you. You heard this message, and you, were, you couldn't figure out any better way to say it. Then you were born again. You like became a whole new person. You were born that one time as a person, but now you've been born again as a completely different person because that's how much has changed. And he's telling them, that's why you're different, and here's how you can stay different, and here's how you can respond differently to these people than the world would respond to them if they're in your same shoes. And we covered last week that he starts talking about, okay, um, I want you to do good, and in doing so, glorify God. Make a God's name known, his reputation known. Like, this is a God who changes people. And so he covered, okay, citizens, what should be your relationship with the government? And he said, be subject to the government. And then he talks about slaves. What should your relationship to your masters be? And he said, be subject to your masters. And now this week he gets into wives, relationship with their husbands. Wives, be subject to your husbands. And then he has uh, talks about husbands' relationship with their wives. And we might have felt like, okay, citizens, that's kind of like our job. You know, that's a public affair. And then, okay, uh, we, we aren't slaves, but we implied it to thinking about being employees under employers. And it's like, okay, that's kind of like public stuff. That's it for your job. That's kind of what's going on with the government. But now he's getting into very private matters. It's like Peter walks into somebody's house um, and sits down with the husband and wife and starts doing marriage counseling. Like, hey, 
this is how this relationship is supposed to look. Like, I've been hearing you've been having difficulties, and I just want to sit down and help you through this. And maybe you're like, whoa, Peter, just, you know, stick to what you know. Like, you don't have any business in this part of our lives. But what we're showing is that the gospel, uh, the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done, touches all parts of our lives. There's not, our lives aren't compartmentalized into, like, well, I've got my marriage stuff, and I've got my, um, or, or whatever it is, any kinds of relationships. And then I've got um, uh, what I do at work, and I've got how I spend my money. And then I have my church time. And church time is church time, and it doesn't bleed over. It's like, you know, keep your nose out of that, Jesus. Like, that's the rest of my life. This hour and 15 minutes on Sunday, that's my church time. Or, you know, Saturdays when we do cookouts, that's church time, and the rest is kind of my time. But what we're showing here is that Jesus doesn't compartmentalize. And, you know, I just want to say up front, this is addressed to wives and husbands. And I know that not all of you are married, but the instructions that Peter gives here for both husbands and wives are uh, instructive for all of us. They can apply to all human relationships. And so we're kind of like listening in on Peter's counseling a wife uh, whose husband isn't a believer. Um, that's the situation here. It's like, okay, he hasn't been won over to Jesus. He hasn't been won by the word of God, the gospel of Jesus. But here's how you interact with them. And then, and perhaps you have people in your life, close friends who aren't believers, people you're neighbors you're close with that, or people at work, maybe your uh, your manager at work, or employees, co-workers and stuff, uh, maybe they're not believers, and so this could be something that you're like, I'm going to take that away uh, of how I'm going to interact with those people from now on. But then he also talks uh, to husbands, and how they have to treat their wives, uh, and we can consider that, that the, he's saying, husbands, you are in this leadership position over your wife. And so this is how you ought to treat somebody if you're in a leadership position. This is what, how you should be acting. And so perhaps you're in a situation where it's like, I feel like I've been given, given some leadership in this position. I've been given some authority. I've been entrusted with some responsibility. How ought I treat, to treat the people who are under my leadership? And so we see that uh, this passage is about relationships. The gospel is about a changed relationship with God that also changes all of our other relationships. In life, and we see from this passage that God really cares about our relationships. And so let's begin with the part that he addresses to wives in verses 1 through 6. And this, it begins with, uh, he says, likewise. Uh, likewise, you know, what, what, what were we supposed to do that it's likewise too? And it goes back to verse 13 be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And verse 18 in chapter 2 servants, be subject to your masters. And then he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And, you know, that word, be subject to, maybe that, you know, in, as Americans, that can kind of be like, I don't really like that. And um, first, let's, let's hear what Peter's saying, and then we'll come back to, what is this whole thing about being subject to? Is this something we're supposed to still do today? And so what, why does he say this, be subject to your own husbands? He says in the rest of verse 1, chapter 3, so that... Even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. And then it says, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And uh, so that's why you're supposed to be subject to them. And how are they supposed to do that? What's that going to look like? And like I said, Peter knows that there's, there's women in this church, these church communities who have come to believe in Jesus and their husbands have not. And he's telling them, what what should we? You know, wouldn't you be thinking? Well, what should I do? I'm supposed to my and in that culture, husbands, not wives, made the decision for what the family religion was going to be. That and a wife could have like some kind of like side religion, but ultimately the family was 
this is our religion and the, and the husband decides it. And so in these other situations that Peter has talked about, he's talked to people who are followers of Jesus who are under pressure from those who don't share their beliefs. And how much more that it be experienced for a wife who surrendered her life to Jesus. But now she feels this pressure. Well, my husband, though, he's still worshiping the same Roman gods. He's still worshiping the same Greek gods. He's still going and doing all that stuff. And I'm saying, I can't do that anymore. Uh, I've given my allegiance to somebody else. Like, I'm going to still be your wife, but I can't get involved in that. And what is the spouse, or what is the husband supposed to respond to? I'm the one who decides the religion of this family. Um, you can do that on the side, but no, you are coming to these you know, worship practices with me. When I go to the pagan gods, you're going to come with me to this. And so you can see how this would be hard for a, a wife in this culture, a wife today even, who's uh, married to a spouse who isn't a believer, or vice versa. And so if the husband wants to follow these pagan religions, it was expected that the, la- the wife would follow as well. And so what's remarkable in First Peter, first of all, is that wives are even addressed at all. Typically it was, talk to husbands. They're who is in authority, they're who matter. But he, I'm not saying that's Peter's outlook, but in that culture, and he, sa- he just gives these six verses to wives, to women, and one verse to husbands. And so he's like, I'm going to address you uh, as an you know, independent moral agent. Like, you have agency in this situation. You can do things. It's not just, well, sorry, you got to stick with his religion. He actually has a view toward... Uh, you should want to convert him. And here's why. You want to win him over. And it's like, whoa, you're in that culture. It's, no, get in line. Like, follow what your husband says. Like, you, he is your leader. He's the head of that household. And Peter's speaking into this situation. And it talks about the power of the gospel. Like, how much would it take um, a woman who, some, for, in some way, she hears this gospel message, message. Hey, there's this Jewish guy who died and rose again, and he did so in order to save you from your sins. I mean, just that sounds weird to somebody who's in a pagan religion. And then all of a sudden, something happens to her. God uses that, and she's born again, as Peter says. It's like, all of a sudden, it, just, it makes sense. It clicks. She sees, it's not just this guy who died, and he's talking about sins. He died for my sins. And it's me, it's personally. He was on that cross for me. And then she says, I have to give my life to him. I have to surrender my life to him. So it speaks the power of the gospel that um, this good news came to her and it changed her and she really couldn't help but be changed even though I know this was this is what it's going to mean for me at home with my husband. And what is their conduct to be? He says in verses 3 to 4, Do not let your adorning be external and the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And in a country where we value freedom of speech, if anybody would tell me, you can't speak up about that, we can kind of get riled up about that. Um, and But what Peter says here is like, actually, uh, this gentle and quiet spirit, be subject, let be respectful, and be subject to your husband with this gentle and quiet spirit. And then he says this example from the Old Testament, uh, verse 5. Why? For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. And Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And so he's giving this command that uh, this, is, this is a good thing to do, and it's precious in God's sight. God sees it. He takes notice of it. 
And it's precious to him when you put on this gentle and quiet spirit. And why is that? Because this, he knows, because this is how the women in the Old Testament adorned themselves. They hoped in God, it says, and this is what they did. They had this gentle and quiet spirit, respectful to their husbands. And he says, your children, if you do the same, you're walking in her example, you're following her footsteps. And he quotes, you might think, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, Abraham has these two instances where he says, Sarah, honey, uh, we're married, but in this situation, tell these guys that you're my sister so that they don't kill me and take you. And then she does. But that's not actually what he quotes. He doesn't quote, just like you know, Abraham told Sarah to say that, <laughs> say she's his sister, do that, submit to Abraham like that. No, he actually just pulls a quote from like this random, ordinary, casual passage showing this was the general conduct of Sarah's life, is that she was following her husband's lead. And it's not one of those crazy stories where she had to pretend to be a sister. But in the normal, every day, this is what uh, she was doing. Then he says at the end of verse 6, um, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening, then you're like Sarah. So in a way, he's saying, don't fear these hus- your husbands, even if they disapprove of you for your loyalty to Christ. And so we come back, let's just go back to this term that he says in verse 1, likewise, likewise. Of course, likewise, you know, submit to your husbands like the citizens are submitting to their government like slaves are sitting, submitting to their masters. Likewise, you too submit as well. But in the verses right before chapter 3, verse 1, who do we read about that had a gentle and quiet spirit worthy of imitation? Peter talks about Jesus. says, verse 21, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, and now here's a speech. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, uh, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so, and now we read that, and likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands. Like, like who? Like Jesus, this gentle and quiet spirit that he had, that he was no deceit in his mouth, didn't commit any sin, didn't revile in return, didn't threaten people when he was suffering, and he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And this is Jesus, was Jesus' relationship with people who were in authority, uh, people who reject him as king. And now it's, I know, you know, wives, you're in this difficult position where you, Jesus is your king, and your husband is rejecting your king. And how you're supposed to be in this situation is act just like your king to this person who has rejected him. And it's, so it's an instruction to be like Christ. And wives are encouraged to adorn themselves with a gentle and quiet spirit, which are the characteristics described of Jesus. And if you think about that, it requires uh, amazing strength, hope, and faith to be quiet when everything in you wants to say something. And you might have, just for example, you might experience, um, I don't know, if Katie and I were like, yesterday we said, why is it always that when people talk about the difficult relationship they have, it's always mother-in-laws. So I'm sorry, I know some of you are mother-in-laws, um, but it's, I think sometimes it's like um, moms who've been parents of kids, a lot of kids, have a hard time watching somebody else struggling through parenting kids, and they want to give you know, this feedback. And we might feel like, uh, I want to say something back to that. And it's like, it takes a lot to say, I'm just going to take this 
I don't like that I'm getting this advice, but I'm going to be quiet. I'm a gentle and quiet spirit. Or maybe you see people doing something wrong at work or in the church or in your family, and you're like, I need to say something. I need to correct that. This isn't right. And that's me. Usually if I see something wrong, I need to do something. And what I've been learning lately is, no, actually sometimes the right thing to do is nothing, is to say nothing, is to be quiet and gentle and continue loving without pointing out that thing that's wrong. And so these wives that have trusted in Jesus and they're seeing their husband concerned for his eternal, uh, you know, where is he going to go for eternity? What his relationship with God? He's believing in all these false gods. And I need to say something. I need to do something. I need to talk to him about this. I need to convince them. And Peter says, take Jesus' example. You have this person in authority over you who's rejecting your king. Have a gentle and quiet spirit. And so what will these husbands who don't believe in Jesus and have rejected him, what are they going to see? They're going to see my wife's surrender to Jesus made her a better wife. She's being transformed. This hope that she has, now all of a sudden she had, she's like brighter, she's warmer, she's happier, and yet she's even gentler and even quiet and quieter in her spirit that um, she doesn't, she completely disagrees with me on what I believe and what she believes, but, and yet she's still serving me and loving me, treating me with kindness, looking out for um, what I would, uh, what, I, what I need, my needs and not just hers. And it could probably, and probably was seen as insubordinate, insubordinate and disrespectful to a, for a wife to abandon the religion of her husband and to not um, engage in those practices anymore. And so, but we see Jesus' stance toward people who were, there's times when he challenged the religious leaders, but in the end, his last you know, 24 hours of life, he was just gentle and quiet before them. And she's not passive. It might think like, okay, well, she's kind of just like passive, just you know, kind of fall in line, but Peter, it's very missional that he says that you may win her without a word, win her to the word without a word. And it's her submission is very missional. A gentle and quiet spirit is very missional. Following the example of Christ is very missional. And the, her husband might say, this guy, Jesus, has made my wife a better wife. I thought it should become a worse person. She, you know, this weird religion, she's abandoned all this stuff, but she's actually a better wife. And Jesus was no doormat. I mean, you see that he was submissive to the Father's will. He's gentle and quiet. But Jesus was no doormat. But sometimes the way he loved people was, I'm going to be gentle and quiet. And Peter doesn't say to the, his wife, these wives, you just need to fall in line. Do what he says. He's your husband. But no, actually, who is she serving? She's serving King Jesus. He's her master. She's following his footsteps, following his Example, Jesus is her Lord, her ruler, the shepherd and overseer of her soul, as verse chapter 2, verse 25 said. And so this, her, the position of ultimate authority in her life belongs to Jesus. And she, Peter is saying, have this character, put on this character, that you might also win your husband to Jesus as well. And so her hope in God makes a visible difference. And her husband may ask, what, what is it about you? Something different. What is going on here? And so we see the gospel is about a changed relationship with God that changes all of our other relationship, and God cares about our relationship. It says, what you're doing is very precious in God's sight. So we're going to move, cover husbands, and we'll come back again to this idea of being subject in submission. To husbands, he says in verse 7, live with your wives in an understanding way, which basically means being considerate, being respectful, looking out for her needs and her desires. How are they supposed to do this? 
he continues, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. So that's how they're supposed, how is he supposed to live with them in an understanding way? By showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And it actually doesn't say wives are the weaker vessels, but women are the weaker vessels. And this has been interpreted in a multitude of ways. One is possibly physical strength, which is just, you know, in general across the board, men have more physical strength than women. So are they weaker vessel in that way? I think something that makes sense for Peter's context is that uh, women in comparison to men in that culture, and even in our world today, are more vulnerable in general. That women have more dangers and are more vulnerable than men. And let me give you just one example. When we were on a mission trip from Brazil, there was times uh, we always made sure there's a man, man, you know, there's like 20 of us, that there was a man at the back of our group because we're thinking, we don't know people here. Sometimes we're in rougher places of town and it'd always be like, there needs to be a guy with this group of women because we, and they, and they enjoyed it. They wanted that. They wanted men to be with them because it's like people are less likely to try something or if there's somebody... You know, some guy coming up to a group of ladies doing weird stuff is like guys could step in and stop that. Another example is, Katie tells me about this all the time. She's like, and I was mentioning this passage to her, and she was like, you go for a walk at night and you think nothing of it. She's like, I would not go for a walk at night in her neighborhood. Or even she's thinking about when she's, you know, leaving somewhere, getting to her car at night. She's thinking just more more uh, self-protective thoughts than I'm thinking. I just walked to my car. And don't worry about it. And maybe that's not all ladies, but at least for the examples I've seen in my life, it's women are more vulnerable in our world today than men are. And they feel it. But another way to look at it as is you know, a weaker vessel can be easily broken, easily damaged. And this isn't saying that a woman is less strong internally. Like I said, this gentle, quiet spirit, that takes enormous strength to be quiet and gentle when all you want to do is say something that you shouldn't say. And that takes a lot of power. But in Peter's world, um, women were under their husbands. They weren't in, sometimes you would see that they weren't even viewed as their own. They belonged to their husband. And so in that sense, in this, in that culture, it's uh, men are in authority over the women. And so if they're in a more vulnerable position. The whole, this whole culture and society that they're in sees them as like, you need to be submitted to a man. And so now he is, and anytime somebody's in authority over someone else, the people who are under that authority are in a more vulnerable position than the person in authority. And so I think that's one of the ways he's looking at it, is that she's in a more vulnerable position, he calls her the weaker vessel, because she's under your authority. And that's where she ought to be, according to what I've just told you, and according to this culture. And so recognizing she's in the vulnerable position of saying, I'm submitting to you, Show honor to her because she is doing that. Treat her how you ought to treat her. And this whole show honor word, what he says, show honor, I mean, back in 2.17 he said, honor everyone. And so now he's you know, applying that to this situation. But a husband hearing that might say, show her honor. That's what she's supposed to do to me. She's supposed to honor me. She's supposed to respect me. I'm not supposed to show honor to her. But he, he flips it. He says, you show honor to her. Give her the respect that she deserves. And so he, he flips it around. And why ought they to show honor to their wives as a weaker vessel? He gives two reasons. He says, uh, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, and so that your prayers may not be hindered. 
And so he says, they are fellow heirs with you of the grace of life. In other words, they are equal with you before God. You don't have, there's not the men standing with God and then the women standing with God that, you know, of a lower standing. No, you're in the same position in relation to God as your wife. And so show her honor as someone who's inheriting the grace of life with you, that they're not second-class Christians. Then he also says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And this shows that uh, how we treat other people are very important to God. That it's not just this, oh, um, you know, God forgives me, I messed up. But he's like, no, you need to pay attention to this. It's like um, the, what, he, uh, what he says to wives was, this attitude you take on is very precious in God's sight. And then he gives the husbands a warning. Here's your job, and be careful to do it so that your prayers may not be hindered with God. And then later on in chapter 3, verse 12, um, he says, uh, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He's quoting Psalm 34. The, ears of the, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. And so, husbands, listen. If you're going to be the head of this household, you need to lead righteously, showing honor to her, respecting her, showing her that she's a fellow heir of the grace of life with you. And otherwise, your prayers are going to be hindered. My ears are going to be stopped. And there's lots of things in the Old Testament where God would say, if you close your ears to the poor, to the vulnerable in your society, I'm going to close my ears to you. And you would see um, uh, when Jesus is given the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you come to the altar with your gift for God and you realize somebody has something against you, leave it there, take a pause on doing this religious activity with God and worshiping him, and go be right with that person that you've wronged. Or even at the end of the Lord's Prayer, uh, I believe Bob covered this um, a couple weeks back. It says, if you do not give, forgive people who have sinned against you, God will not forgive you. And uh, uh, Jesus says, if anyone hates his fellow human, then he does not love God. And so if things aren't right horizontally, we can't get things right vertically. If we're ignoring other people, mistreating them, not forgiving them, not showing... And he's saying, husbands, if you're not showing honor to your wives and treating them as co-heirs of everything that you're going to have too with, with God, with, with me, then he's saying things aren't going to be right vertically. God's going to, it's going to hinder your prayers. And so this treatment of his wife, which of a husband would have gotten him a lot of attention. She belongs to you. Why are you showing her such honor and respect and dignity? Why do you value her opinion so much? You're the, you're the boss around here. And it's like you think it's your job to honor her instead of her job to honor you. And he would say, well, yes, and it is my job to honor her. And that's, we, again, we see Jesus' example in verses, chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. It says, Christ, Christ the King, the Lord, suffered for you. He himself bore our sins. You, his, by his wounds, you are healed. He is the shepherd and overseer of your soul. And now, husbands, be like him. He died for you. He gave his life to you, laid down his life for you. Now, show honor to your wife in the same way that Christ has done this for you, that he's laid down his life for you. So let's come back to this word, submission, which may, uh, maybe you've heard teachings on that before in church life, in marriage relationships. But there's typically two uh, kind of groups, two kind of views on what to make of men and women's relationship in the home and in the church. And the one is called complementarianism. You know, that's like your $10 word for the day. 
Uh, just think of it as complementing, complementing one another. Complementarianism is men and women are equal, image bearers of God, equal before God, but they have different roles that are complementary to one another. So equal, but different roles, different functions in the home and in the church. And the other uh, view is egalitarianism. And you can just think of equal, equal, egalitarianism is that men and women are equal with equal roles available to both. Not different roles, not complementary roles, but all opportunity is open to men and women. And, you know, to be frank, where Peter is writing into a patriarchal culture, men lead things, men are in charge. And so we could say, okay, was Peter just following the culture? Like, this is our culture, ladies, and so here's how you can respect God in that culture. And so then what we say now today, well, that's no longer our culture. Uh, we're in a patriarchal culture. If anything, we're trying to get more and more equal men, women, no difference between them at all. Um, that's where our culture is right now. And you can even choose which one you want to be. And so there's no God-given gender, no God-given gender uh, roles or functions or positions. It's just all equal. You can be whatever you want. And we might say, okay, um, our culture has changed. And so does this teaching apply in a culture where, that we're not in a patriarchal culture where it's much less men, women, equal, does this teaching still apply? And anytime we're reinterpreting the Bible to displace a long-held position or belief so that it makes Christianity look more favorable to our culture, we should always be very cautious. This passage... I guarantee would offend tons of people. Hey, just you know, to, to bring some of your friends, you know, at a I don't know, having like a next cookout you have or next people you have over. I want to read a passage to you, and I want to hear what you think, and read that, and see how people respond to it. Um, that that fact that people would maybe be offended by it and would j- reject Christianity because of what it teaches about men and women's roles in the home and in the church. If we think it'd be less offensive by changing it, we should be always cautious about changing long-held positions and beliefs because it will, if we do, it'll be less offensive to our culture. Does that make sense? Like, you know, it'd be more... people. Christianity would be easier to swallow if you just took these seven verses out. We should always be very cautious when that's the case, that people will like Jesus, they'll like the gospel more, they'll like the Bible more if it wasn't in there. We should always be cautious about changing something like that. And really, this was, I found this helpful, uh, just one, two sentences by uh, a book I was reading to help with this. He said, a different function does not suggest that they are lesser beings, referring to women. Those who argue that a different function implies inequality betray a secular worldview that identifies worth with stature and the exercise of authority. In other words, if you are limited in what you're able to do, that says something about who you are. Rather than who you are as an image bearer of Christ, a child of God, you're an equal heir of the grace of life and all these things that God promises. And yet, there are limitations that women do this and not this, men do this and not that. There are limitations on that. So limitations on what we do, there's an assumption that if there's a limit on what I'm doing, that's a limit on who I can be. And that's just not the case. And so if you want to know my position, I'm complementarian, which men and women are equal, but with complementary roles. 
Um, and I'm, you know, if you, you feel differently, that's fine. I'm, you know, I'm not going to say like you have to be that to be part of this church. Although in general, it's kind of the way the EFCA uh, does things. But look what Peter says here: they're equal as image bearers of God, creation. They're equal as children of God, redemption. Men, women, both are bought with the precious blood of Christ. And what I would say about complementarianism, um, which is in the home, a wife is, or a husband is supposed to be head of the household, the leader, and uh, a wife would be um, submitting. The command to submit is not given from a husband to a wife. Peter is saying, wives, submit. Paul will say in Ephesians 5, wives, submit. And so a husband should never be saying, First Peter 3.1, submit. It, the command to submit is never from husband to wife. It's a third party coming in and saying, this is how it's supposed to look. And if a husband is ever saying, look, God says you need to submit to me, so you need to do it. They have now abandoned what they're commanded to do in verse 7 of showing honor and respect and dignity. And it was interesting, I texted Bob and Brian and um, three pastor friends because I could not think of a time that Jesus ever commanded someone to submit to him. You need to submit. He invited people. He said, if you want to follow me, here's what you need to do. So there's an if there, it's an invitation. Um... He, if anyone come after me, deny themselves. And he leaves it up to them. He doesn't demand it. You need to submit to me. I'm the king. Do it. That's what God says you need to do. Jesus does not do that. The closest you get is him saying, follow me. To his original disciples, he says, follow me. Which is a command. And yet, it's really an invitation. Follow me. Um, that could have said no. Uh, and he describes the benefits of submitting to him. Build your life on this foundation, and here's how life is going to go. Listen to my words, take them, obey them, and this is how it's going to go. He doesn't say, do it now, you need to do it. And he says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And so there's all this invitation that Jesus gives. And he never says and demands submission from people, even though he's worthy of it. And what people submit to him, you know, people come and bow down before him and you know, address him as a king and treat him as a king, but he didn't tell them to do that. They see who he is, and they respond appropriately. And in Matthew 20, uh, some of Jesus' disciples come and say, we want authority, we want power, we want greatness. And he says, I don't think you understand what that means. You're thinking in terms of, you're going to be up there important and greatness. He says, no, greatness in the kingdom is becoming a servant, becoming last and serving people, not authority and power and all these things that you're thinking of. And so he completely flips it. And so a leader's job in any situation is to lay down their life for the good of those they're leading. It's not the leader's job to say, I'm the leader you need to submit. That's the follower's job. And I appreciate what John Piper says about this topic. And he's very hardcore complementarian. He's a pastor, or was a pastor in Minnesota. And he says leadership is about who says let's the most. Let's go for ice cream. Let's pray. Let's read our Bible in, during this vacation. And, you know, in any situation it is. And Katie's mom, we were there a couple weeks ago, and this topic came up, I don't even remember why. And she said, submitting is easy when you're married to someone like Gerald. Gerald is Katie's dad. And I think, that, I think that's right, is that submitting to someone like Jesus, which we do, is for our benefit. Who would not want to be led by someone like Jesus? would not want to be putting ourselves under his authority because he is laying down his life. It's like, Jesus, I'm submitting to you, and at the same time, he's like, 
getting down on the floor to like wash our dirty feet. It's like, this is what it looks like to have me as your leader. I get down lower than you. And so it is never a leader's job in the home or in the church to be saying, you need to submit. It's a leader's job to be getting down on their knees and serving other people. And so as you think about your life, um, what, how can you take this to, uh, into your life? Peter is saying, you're citizens of a different kingdom and you need to live differently. I'm looking for my page. It talks about how to, what we're gonna, I want to talk about at the end. Oh, we're, as humans, we're just, we're bad at both. We're bad at being under authority and we're bad at being in authority. We're bad at both. And you, I'm sure you have situations in your life where in some times you're under authority and sometimes you're in authority. Or you, in some places you have influence and some places you're under the influence of somebody else. And we tend toward transactional relationships. Transactional, where it's like, what can this person do for me? And so we either see people as vehicles or obstacles to getting what we want. And if someone is a vehicle, then well, I'll keep them around and use them. If they're an obstacle, I want to remove them or I want to get out from under their authority. Uh, And so this includes people in authority over us. We honor them if they're giving us what we want. And this includes people over whom we have authority. We treat them kindly if they're giving us what we want. And so we can mess it up both ways. And we see back in Genesis 3, when the first humans, uh, they decide, we don't really want to be under God's authority. We'd like to be in charge. And so they left God's authority. And from then on, we don't do well under authority. We don't do well with authority. And we get in this tug of war with people, where whether it's people below us or above us, I'll just say it that way, that we're like trying to pull something out of them. This is what I need from you. This is what I want from you. And if we can't pull it out of them, we're just like, okay, fine. I'm either going to keep pulling or we'll give up and go find someone who can give us what we want. And it's very transactional. And we tend to give people what they deserve. Oh, I'll give my boss the respect he deserves. He's not a good boss, so I don't respect him. Or the people below us, well, I'll treat them as they deserve. Um, I'm not going to show honor to them unless you know they deserve it. But when our hope is in Jesus, we can let go of that rope that we're tug, trying to tug something out of people. We can let go and say, my hope isn't in this person, whether it's a person we're leading or a person that's leading us. My hope's not in them. So I can let go and I can think about well, how can I love them? Um, Philippians uh, chapter 2, we see, have this mind among yourselves that was Jesus, that he did not just concern himself with his own concerns, and he counted others as more significant than himself. And he showed it by, he had all the glory in the world, but he came, became a human, uh, was obedient and became a servant to other people, obedient even to the point of death. And now he has all this glory. He didn't come demanding glory, but was given it. God gave it to him that there was suffering and then glory, death, then resurrection and uh, the throne. So you may ask yourself, uh, with somebody that you um, that's in authority over you, who's in charge over you. If you were in charge, how would you like those that you have authority over to treat you? Does that make sense? You have a manager. Okay, if I was in that, my manager's shoes, how would I like me to be treating him? Does that make sense? Like, if I was manager, how would I want people to treat me? Or if I if you're in a if you have authority over someone you can think okay um, if I was in their shoes where I'm their manager how would I want to be treated if I was down an employee uh, underneath a manager and so you can consider that for your life and God has pulled us into a non-transactional relationship with Him that He doesn't give us what we deserve 
And so even when it comes to our husbands or wives or managers and in the government, that we treat people better than they deserve uh, because we're not transactional. Like God has treated us better than we deserve, and so we treat people that have leadership over better than they deserve. We treat people who have leadership over us better than they deserve. And really what he's saying here is do good and glorify God as people under authority and people in authority. I want to take a moment before uh, we um, move on to the next piece of the service. And I want you to consider, you know, what difference has Jesus made for you today? We've been talking about Jesus and his example for us in this passage where Peter's trying to help people live as Christians in their culture. And so just take a moment and consider, is there a word, phrase, or image that has stuck out to you today? Is there a word, phrase, or image that stuck out to you today? Just take a few moments in silence. Secondly, how does that word, phrase, or image intersect with your life right now? what is God inviting you to do? Lord, you know that there's sometimes passages that you, words you've given us that Uh, can strike us as foreign. And I don't know if that's happening today, but Lord, would you help us all to be able to walk in obedience to your Son, that we would be like him in all of our relationships, whether we are under authority or in authority. Would you give us the strength we need by your grace that we would treat others as better than they deserve. In the name we pray. Amen.